Shoes. It is a podcast for women of color where we talk about what we're going through each and every day, y'all. And it's me, your host, Karen Davis-Thompson. And I am with a guest that I have had on before, and I feel like she's become a friend. Um, and there is an exciting chapter that they have coming up and then an important uh, date that we also want to talk about. So Natalie Wilson is with me again, and I want her to just say hello and just refresh everybody's memory about who you are and what you do. Okay, Karen, thank you for having me. And yes, we are friends. Um, we've, you know, done some, com- had some conversations before. So I am Natalie Wilson, and I am the co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that brings awareness to missing people of color across the country. We help search for them, and we also provide resources for families um, that are again, desperately searching for their missing loved one. And then I also have started or have a um, boutique PR agency that provides um, visibility um, or PR services, media relations services to nonprofits and true crime platforms. Okay. That last part, I didn't know the true crime. I didn't know. So talk about that just a little bit, and then we'll get into these important dates that you Okay, so with the um, PR agencies called the NWR Communications Group, what I wanted to do was to bring my experience and my background to help, again, nonprofits and um, entities that have a true crime um, you know, platform, because again, that's my background with the Black and Missing Foundation. There is an element of true crime there. Um, and I've been able to, with the docuseries, um, Black and Missing on HBO, I was able to, or the PR company was able to, you know, provide media relations, particularly to the African-American um, audience. And that was a great blessing. And I really enjoyed watching that. I encouraged others to watch it. Um, it was just really powerful to see uh, what people of color go through when they're trying to get Um, some exposure for their missing loved one. And I think it's a great segue uh, into the few things we want to kind of catch up on today. Um, But before we dive into it, how did that docu-series come about for you all? I was just really excited, um, sad in some ways that we need something like that, but excited that it was getting some exposure. So how did all of that happen? So it came about um, in 2017, Derek and I were awarded the Black Girls Rock Change Agent Award, um, and Soledad O'Brien saw us on the segment or saw us receiving the award, and she wanted to highlight, um, you know, the challenges that we face and families face in getting media coverage and law enforcement resources. So she reached out to us and said, hey, you know, I, I want to showcase, you know, what you all do. Um, to be quite honest with you, we were skeptical. We are, you know, rarely, uh, you know, have cameras following us because it was really a three-year process. But then we thought about it. It's a platform that families need to tell their stories. So that's how it, that's how it came about. It was Soledad O'Brien wanting to use her voice, her platform, her influence to talk about this issue. I know she does that um, quite a bit. She's had a few docu-series like that. So if people have not had the chance to watch that, I encourage them to do so. I think it was on HBO. 
if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And it's streaming on HBO Max. Okay. So I just, I encourage people if they have not seen it to do that. And I'll be sure to put more information in the show notes about how they can find um, that. But if they have HBO Max, they should just look up. Is it, it was called Black and Missing. That was the name of it, right? Yes. And yes. it provides an insider's view or an insider's look, bird's eye view into, again, the challenges that we face in getting media coverage and law enforcement resources and what these families are going through. So you really come along with us as we try to solve these cases. Um, and it has been very instrumental, instrumental in bringing about change for the organization in some of the cases that were profiled or featured in the segment. And I know one of the things that they um, talk about was um, sex trafficking, human trafficking. And do you find that often in the cases that you all are involved in, that there, there is an element of that um, to where these young ladies um, are being, or even young men, I would imagine, are they end up in human trafficking or sex trafficking? I know in one of them, there was a young lady that I guess he was like a Lyft or Uber driver had picked up the night before. And when he saw her picture or he heard something about her, I think on the, like a, the Michael Bayston radio show, mm-hmm. he was adamant that that was the girl he picked up and he called you guys instead of the police because he which is sad but he didn't think the police were going to really take it seriously and I think it was like they found her maybe with just a few hours to spare before she'd ended up God only knows where Um, so do you find that that is the case a lot of times well People are disappearing for a number of reasons, and sex trafficking is one of them, Um, domestic violence, mental health. Um, You know, we're seeing people going missing for a number of reasons, but I will say that we are seeing an uptick in the number of cases of sex trafficking victims. And surprisingly, we have seen an uptick in cases of sex trafficking since the pandemic because we are spending so much of our time online. Well, guess what? The predator is also spending a lot of time online. And you know, our children um, are talking to them and, and they believe that they're you know, interacting with someone their age and they're saying the right things, meaning the predators and they're grooming our children to become comfortable with them and, you know, if your child may get into an argument with you or they disagree with something that you say, you know what, the predator will say, you don't have to listen to them. You know, they don't know what they're talking about. I can help you. And it's a true grooming process. Last August, there was a young lady, um, 14 years old, that was missing out of Atlanta. And her parents had no idea that she was talking to someone online for two years. She was a gamer. And this person was grooming her when she, when he sent her, you know, emails, she would read them and then they would disappear. So it's a very sophisticated process. And her parents were so angry that they saw none of the signs. They didn't, they didn't, you know, know what was going on. So sex trafficking is definitely an issue that is affecting our communities. And as we're out and about talking to, um, you know, people in our community, they tend to think that sex trafficking is happening abroad in China or Russia. No, it's happening in our backyards. And I do think that, you know, it's interesting you said that that's one of the 
the the issues that I think we have just somebody you know who's just been following you all and who you know sees these stories in the news people are always shocked to find out that it's happening in the United States you know I don't know why they think somehow we're immune but they think that that's something that happens in other places um and they don't realize that it's happening in their backyards you know to I mean two years that's a long time to groom a child yeah um you know that that's a lot of time and investment in this child thinking this is somebody that cares about them I mean that's that it, just to know that they're willing to put that type of time in right. um and and are there if there if if you could give people maybe three things as a parent that they think they should be looking for to make sure that they are staying in tune with what their child is doing, especially since you're right with the pandemic, there's more schoolwork online, there's more, mm-hmm. you know, maybe parents lapse the rules with, with internet access because they aren't able to go out with their friends. So what are some of the top things that a parent should be paying attention to? Well, I will say to parents, if your child is on social media, we ask parents all the time to create a fictitious account and see if you can befriend your child and, you know, have those, you know, interactions with them. And if they share information that makes you uncomfortable, or you know that they shouldn't be sharing with you, like, you know, who they really are, what school they attend, where they live, this is an opportunity for you to have that tough conversation with them to let them know, hey, I wasn't who you thought I was you know, while you were chatting with me online. And, you know, be that nosy parent, know who their friends are, know who, you know, they're hanging out with, who they're going to the mall with. Because many of the sex trafficking cases, it's also a peer that has, you know, lured them into sex trafficking. Um, they are thinking, you know, it's a friend from school. I'm going to go to the mall or, or to their house and hang out with them. But they're also grooming them, um, you know, in this process. And again, it, it, I can't say, you know, enough is having those tough conversations. And we also ask parents to have, you know, the computer in a, in a location where you can monitor it. If the child is in their room, the door is closed, you don't know what they're doing or who they're speaking to online. That is so true. I think that, um, you know, in the internet, things change so quickly. Like, I, I obviously, I'm more tech savvy than my parents, right? But my daughter, honey, she can move around on that computer faster than... <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I can and pull it phone. up, and I, yep. right? And I'm, and I think I'm pretty tech savvy. It's not mm-hmm. like I'm, uh, like I don't know about social media or have accounts or whatever. But they're just so good, and it, and it's like the, you learn one thing, and then something else comes out. Or like, who would have mm-hmm. thought that mm-hmm. they would be able to have some sort of app where the messages disappear? Yeah, you know, like when they first started that with Snapchat, and I'm mm-hmm. like, really? <laughs> you know, yeah. it just makes it harder for a parent to be able to monitor. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what's going on with their child. Uh, And that, you know, that leads us to, as we're talking about this, I know we said that May 25th is National Missing Missing Children's Day. Is that right? That is correct. May 25th is National Missing Children's Day. And May 24th, um, we will be, I don't want to say celebrating, but it's our 14th year anniversary. I know, and it's hard to to figure out what to call that. I mean, on, on one hand, you're I'm sure you and you could tell me I don't I don't want to speak for how you feel but I would just imagine on one hand you are excited that you've been able to be here for that long to help families in need but on the other hand 
like I said about the series, it's sad that we need something like that. Is that kind of how you feel about your 14th year coming up? Absolutely. It's sad that we do need an organization, um, you know, called the Black and Missing Foundation to, to just bring about awareness on a disparity in coverage, in law enforcement resources, and that so many people are disappearing from our communities. And it is our hope that, you know, as we move forward, that the number of cases would decrease dramatically, and there will not be a need for the Black and Missing Foundation. And I know the last time we spoke, um, and I don't know if you have any more recent statistics or if it's about the same, it looked like, wasn't it something like 30 or 40% of the people who go missing were people or color? Is that still an accurate statement? Yes, so close to 40% of all persons missing are of color. So let me say that again. Close to 40% of the missing persons population in the United States are persons of color and mostly African-Americans. And why do you think, obviously, on the surface, we know racism is real and it still exists. But under, underneath that, when you talk to law enforcement, when you talk with the news media and you're saying, hey, take a look at this case versus this one that you all covered heavily like I don't I mean no disrespect um but sometimes the the it's like you know we had a case down here recently um and the young lady they, they think the boyfriend uh, killed her he's killed himself I promise you we are still talking about that in Florida every time I think it's over another article comes up about this case mm -hmm. um and and you don't ever really see that with people of color and I mean and we know who did it they know it was him. There is no doubt about that. He has committed suicide. He killed himself. But we are still talking about it. I think it happened. I mean, it's been almost a year, maybe longer. And I think maybe less than two months ago, I saw another article about that mm -hmm. case here. Mm -hmm. um, so when you talk to the media, when you talk to law enforcement, what are they saying? Do they realize that that it's not equitable? And, and what's the reason behind it? Other than, I mean, the surface level stuff that we all know. Well, I will say it starts with law enforcement and they are the first line um, or of interaction with the families. And they're the go between the families oftentimes and, and the media. What we're finding is that when a child is reported missing by their family, law enforcement tend to classify them as a runaway. And if you're classified as a runaway, you do not receive the Amber Alert or any type of media coverage at all. Also, when, it, when there's a missing adult, they tend to be classified or dismissed as being involved with some type of criminal activity or that behavior is you know, prevalent or that's normal for that part of society. You know, and these individuals tend to be looked at as, you know, taxing on our taxpayers' dollars, but they're not. And what we're trying to do is change the, the narrative and show that these are victims. Oftentimes, our young girls are adultified, and they're not seen as victims. So it's like, okay, you know what, they got what they deserve. No, they did not. These are children. Their brains are not fully developed, and they cannot make the right decisions at time. 
And even if they left home voluntarily, we need to take a look at what are they running away from and ultimately what are they running away to? Because we know that within 24 to 48 hours of being on the street, they have to survive. And these pimps and pedophiles know that and they become victims of sex trafficking. And even with sex trafficking, we know that 57% of the girls that are trafficked are black girls or Af African-American. And the predators and the pimps say that they get less jail time for trafficking a black girl. Now, how disheartening is that? So as a community, we have to do a better job in protecting our children and you know, demanding that our missing are just as important and they matter as anyone else. And it's funny you brought that up. I was going to ask that question. I have a girlfriend who we talk about this quite a bit and she has three girls. I have one daughter. The fact that our girls are almost seen as sex objects, they are sexualized at a very early age. Um, and so it's almost like people don't see them as a child mm -hmm. in danger. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and I don't know where the roots of that come from. I mean, obviously we could unpack this and it could get real deep, but it just, um, I see that quite a bit. It's like, this is a, this is a 15 year old. That's a child, a 14 year old, you know, that's a, that's a child. Absolutely. Um, and, and I, I think I have, I've seen that also where, um, even in the school systems, it's almost like our children are not children. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and then it just carries on from there. Um, it, and so, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, and what would you say just for you personally, I know that this work is important to you. Um, why do you think that you're so passionate about this work and, um, and, and, and in a day, what is it like? Like, can, can you go from, you know, I've got my day mapped out to now somebody's child is missing and your day has completely been, um, turned upside down. Does that happen a lot? How does it weigh on you? Why is this important to you? Why do you keep doing it? I keep doing it because families need us, our communities need us. Um, I remember there was a time a mother, you know, reached out, her daughter was missing out of St. Louis and she couldn't get that media coverage. Coverage, And I called every single news station in St. Louis. And finally, one of the producers was like, you don't know, send me the information, I'll show it on the news. And it could be any one of us that could go missing. It could be our family members, our loved ones. And we would want someone to be there and help us. You know, we're in this fight with these families. We're, we want them to know that we, they have an ally in us. Um, and, and we'll do everything that we can to give them the answers that they deserve. Is it a frustrating, um, is it frustrating? Absolutely. Is it tiring? Yes. But we cannot give up hope uh, for these families because many times we are all that they have. And we have to use our resources, our professions, our experiences to help someone else. It will be very selfish of us to have all of these gifts and talents from God and not to be able to use it to help someone else.
And, and what is a typical day like for you all? Because I, I cannot, I don't even know how many families you guys, it's just the two of you, right? You all don't have a staff. Let's start there. Correct. Well, it's, it is the two of us. We're very much in the weed. This is our mm-hmm. baby. Um, mm-hmm. We do also have a marketing director and, um, you know, I, I want to say about four to five volunteers who help mm-hmm. with most of the work. The large majority of the work is done by um, Derek and I. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been able to provide closure on close to 400 cases, um, but we need the community support to, um, and we need to scale up. And that's what we're trying to do as an organization, um, you know, to help bring so many more home. We do have full-time jobs. Um, you know, so, but this is a full-time job as well for us. So we just have to, you know, we, we prioritize and and just keep going. There is really no typical day. Uh, I start my day out with a list and today that list went out the window because there were so many, you know, critical cases that needed my immediate attention. So there's no typical day. And I know you said that, which I think is amazing for the two of you to do it with a small group of volunteers to have 400 cases that you've been able to provide closures. How many cases would you all say you may be working on at one time? Oh, dude, it, it, it varies. I mean, we have, and especially since the docuseries and we continue to grow as an organization, we have, I mean, I, I don't, can't even put a number on it, but we have many, many cases coming in a day. And it's not just new cases coming in, but it's following up with families, staying in contact with them, checking in on them. Um, you know, so it's a lot of moving parts, you know, media interviews, building the organization as, as a thought leader, finding resources um, for families or maybe someone that was a victim of sex trafficking and they need that help or, you know, resources to be rehabilitated. So there's no typical day, but we just hunker down and keep moving. And I can imagine just from watching the docuseries, not only is it all of what you just described, but I think you all become like family and people that they feel like they can go to just to vent on, how frustrated or sad or whatever it is that they're feeling. Um, would that be true? I, I, that's kind of what I got from just watching the docuseries. And I, a f- couple of phone calls, you guys were just like, I'm just checking to see how you're doing. I know it's been a few weeks. Um, and they would just begin to like pour out what was going on. Does that happen a lot? Yes, because they become our family. Um, if we have to check in on them, this is a very traumatic experience. Think about it. And I'm, I'm not equating a missing loved one to a phone, but think about when you misplace your phone or your key, your keys, you're like, oh my gosh, you're just, you know, you're not in a good headspace. So think about when someone's child is missing. You, you can't think, you, you're just the unknown, all these thoughts are running through your mind. So we're meeting families at the worst point in their lives. And we're walking alongside them and many times holding onto their hands. Sometimes we don't even get a word in. The families are crying, they're upset, 
They don't know what to do. They don't have any money. They don't have any resources. They feel defeated. And we are, you know, trying to lift them up. Today, just two cases that I had, the family member is at wit's end. Like, I want to have a rally for my missing um, niece. But, you know, I also need a billboard and I need media coverage. And, you know, the family member felt overwhelmed and was like, oh, my God, what do I do? I can't do this anymore. And I'm talking to her and trying to, you know, talk her down, let her know it's going to be OK. Let's let's create a strategy and let's talk through this and then let's spring into action. But know that we are here with you every step of the way. And that spoke to another family, hung, hung up the phone with that um, aunt. You know, a, a young girl is missing out of Texas, has some mental health issues. She's not on her meds. She's been missing for about 20 days now. There was a sighting of her being um, trafficked and being forced into prostitution. And her mother, as you can imagine, is losing her mind thinking about all these horrible things that's happening to her daughter and she can't keep it together. And we're, you know, trying to help them navigate through this process. So it's, it's a lot. I can imagine. I can just hear in your voice that it's a lot. <laughs> and I wonder what do you do to, to decompress from that? Because I'm sure it has to be hard to do to turn it off. Like, you know, to say I have to, you know, just for my mind, my, you know, let this go for a little bit. How, how are you able to disconnect or, or can you do that? What I'm starting to do is one, to walk more, just walk and think and talk to God and just, you know, have that peace. And then, uh, you know, I listen to my soca music. I'm Caribbean and just, it uplifts me. It's just giving me that you know, that burst of energy that I need, but I'm also, and, and this is, again, it's what these families are going through. It's very traumatic time is of the essence, but I also realize for my mental health, I no longer answer the phone at four in the morning. Um, you know, we have a, a team that can do that because it sets the tone for the entire day. Um, and it was a tough decision to make, but many, many times I'm getting text messages or calls that my loved one has passed away or, you know, just really horrific stories. And I was like, okay, I need to be grounded. I am no good to you all. If this, you know, it, it's what's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's setting my day. Does that make sense? to get these calls and I'm talking yes. to families at four mm -hmm. in the morning. So I say between four and seven, um, I have to fill my cup up and fill me up, get prayed up, meditate, get in a good headspace. And then I start making calls, um, you know, checking in because it becomes a lot to start your day. At, and I'm, I'm a, and the reason I say four is because I'm an early riser that's when I pretty much start my day. But to get those calls and text messages with these horrific stories, it's really, you know, it's disheartening. 
and I know what you mean. It's like you need some time to center yourself, to prepare yourself before you you have you look at your phone and boom, that's the first thing you start your day with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes total sense. Just having a chance to ground yourself because you never know what um, the day is going to bring. Because sadly, even as you saw in the docu series, it doesn't always end with the person being found right alive. That isn't always what happens. Um, and I know whether it's the person is found alive or, or not, it's still closure for that family. Um, but it's still sad. I think on some level people, you know, I would imagine, and you can tell me if you see this, they tend to, even if maybe in the back of their minds, it's been two years, three years, but they always hold out hope that it's still possible that their loved one could be found, maybe traumatized from whatever they've been through, but alive. And then to get that call that the remains that were found were your son or daughters or your nephew or your niece or whomever. Um, so do you find that a lot of times they're trying to hold out that hope, even as it doesn't look like things are going to go the way they want them to go? Absolutely. And we ask family members to hold on to hope as you advocate and try to find your missing loved one. We have seen stories. Look at the young ladies in Cleveland. I mean, they were missing for a decade and they were able to escape and be reunited with their families. But again, it, you know, it's the unknown that, the, that is the most difficult part. Um, there's a mother that we work with who's looking for her daughter. And she said when she drives on the highway and she sees a black trash bag, she wonders, is my daughter in that bag? You know, is my daughter being abused? Is my daughter eating? Is, is my daughter wearing her glasses because she left home without her glasses? Um, you know, when she was, you know, with, with her story. So the unknown is the most difficult part of it all. Um, but you have to hold on to hope. And sadly, when they're found, but they're not found alive, the families at least have answers. We were told by a couple of family members of missing loved ones, there's no such thing as closure. There's never closure. So what we say is at least they have answers as to what happened to their loved ones so they can move on to the next chapter. And anybody anybody who is listening to this today um, what are some ways that they can help the Black and Missing Foundation as you guys move to that next level? Um, because obviously there's still a lot of work to be done. So what ways can people uh, help? So a couple of things. One, we need our community to be our digital milk carton, meaning go to our website at bamfi.org. When you see profiles, Don't just discard them because you don't know the missing individual. Help it to go viral. Like it, share it within your network. And do you even know who's missing from your community or your state, your city? Go to our website and see who's missing and share those profiles. And as I mentioned earlier, what you didn't see in a docu-series is a lot of behind the scenes, you know, hard work that we do and families depend on us and we want to scale up and bring home so many more. Um, But we need the community support. We need financial support to hire 
you know, investigators and therapists and counselors and, you know, to build up our communications department so that we can bring greater visibility to these cases. And, you know, it's interesting that you talk about being that digital milk carton because um, I have seen, uh, you know, I've watched series and I think even here that Gabby Petito case, that's what I was referencing earlier. There were people who came from other states. Mm-hmm to come and look for that girl. I mean, it was like, what, what, oh, I have a granddaughter. She reminded me, like they came from, I'm thinking, don't know these people from anybody. Right. Um, but they will come out and help with the search and the whole bit. And so um, I totally agree with that. I think sometimes, you know, as a people, you know, we may, may be worried about getting involved or we, there's so much that we as black people have to go through in a day. I mean, just to, you know, my God. It's just so much until, you know, we may sometimes be immune when we need to just stop and take a second. And even like you said, if you do it in your state, at least the people in your state, because mm-hmm. I have seen it, they have gotten on planes yeah, and gone to other states to help look for, for a missing. And I'm like, wow, yeah, um, they will do that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I can. And we need to do that. Yes, we do. Yeah. We need to do that. We need to, you know, go back to it takes a village. So as a community, we are strong and we are powerful and we need to show that our missing matter too. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I hope that people will definitely take you up and just go look. And, uh, and I've done it before and just the number of people and the, it's like they were on their way to visit a friend and then mm-hmm. that was the last they were seeing or they were coming from like everyday stuff, you know, they were coming from. Uh, an aerobics class whatever and like no trace of them mm-hmm. none at all mm-hmm. um I can only imagine how that has to like you said for the family it's not just the fact that um you want to know where they're it's just the whole unknown right um, and your mind coming up with all of these scenarios um that you know can really really be difficult and so I really encourage people to do that um, and as we close up I know we're, we're not going to call it a celebration but what are you all doing to mark the 14 years that you've spent in the trenches doing this work? Well, um, we're having our biggest fundraiser on the 21st. Um, It's a 5K walk or run. And it's really about advocacy, you know, supporting the families, rallying around them to let them know that we love them and care about them. Um, on the 24th, which is our anniversary, we're asking, you know, the community to wear orange, to stand in solidarity with us. And as you wear your orange, please take a picture and tag us on social media. What is the symbolism of the orange? Is that the color for people that, who are missing? Yes. Yeah, so that's our, um, that's our color for the Black and Missing Foundation. It's, it's orange. So we're asking you know, folks to stand in solidarity with us to help us find us by wearing orange. Wearing orange definitely will do that. And then on the 25th for national, um, I know we talked about this a bit, uh, Missing Children's Day. Um, you, you gave us those three things that we should do. I think also going and sharing um, the information that um, is on your website but is there an age that is more vulnerable or that, or that is the most vulnerable uh, when it comes to um, being um, 
you know, subjected or, or being somebody that could be easily sex trafficked? Is there an age typically where this is the, the, the age where it, where it really tends to happen? Or have you all seen that it's all ages really and that there's, it's just across the board? You know, we're typically seeing um, young girls and, and boys now um, between the ages of 11 to, I will say between 11 to 15, but we're also noticing that it's getting younger and younger. So definitely it's, you know, we need to have these tough conversations. And what we're also realizing, there are a lot of systemic issues or challenges within our community that bubbles up and is resulting in, you know, um, missing persons. And I, and I talked about, you know, mental health, that's a, ta a subject that's taboo in our communities. And we really need to take um, a better, a greater look at it. But, you know, when you look at homelessness, we know that, you know, the kids that are in homeless shelters or in foster care, they are disproportionately victims of sex trafficking. You know, um, if you look at a child or a community that's impoverished, um, you know, uh, again, housing, you know, economy, joblessness, all of these factors play a role in the missing persons cases. And I'm glad you mentioned mental health. I know we talked about that briefly, but obviously May is also Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, and so I think it's fitting that you brought that up and you've mentioned it before. Is it typically, hey, you know, um, for me, for example, I have a child who um, has multiple diagnoses and one of them is a mental health disorder. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I worry about her all the time because the number one thing I hear, and it sounds like you guys hear too, they're off those meds. Mm -hmm. um, and when they stop taking their medicine, God, mm -hmm. it's like, <laughs> you know, already reasoning and being and that sort of thing and they're very naive do you find that people can really kind of quickly see that with somebody mm -hmm. who's got a mental mm -hmm. illness that that they're easily taken advantage of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely um you know they some many times um these children do not have that i call it the spirit of discernment and everyone is their friend and they're very trusting and there are some people who take advantage of that. So, you know, my hat goes off to you and to all parents or family members that, that are, you know, doing the best that they can to protect their child from the evils of the world because you know that, you, you know, their vulnerability. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, not to get on my own soapbox, but it's, it's just, it can be hard as they get older because I think, and you may have heard this before, Sometimes when you have a mental health disorder, you take the meds, you start feeling better, you feel better, you don't think you need mm -hmm. the meds, you stop taking the meds. And now, and so it just becomes this like perpetuating cycle that sometimes we don't seem to be able to get out of. Um, and there are and, side effects from the yeah, meds that, yes, you know, they don't, you know, they don't want it to feel a certain way or look a certain way because of the meds. So, yeah, I've, I've had that also. It's almost like, that state of whatever is what's normal to her, to my daughter, right? And so when she's on the meds and she can kind of think a little clear, adulting sucks, you know? So yeah. when she's on her meds and she can think a little clearer and whatever, she doesn't like it. Um, and so, yeah, there, there is that aspect as well. 
Um, so my heart goes out to um, all of the families who are, I, I can only imagine. I mean, um, so far we've been able to keep up with her, even though right now she's not on the beds. Um, but so far, so good. So I'm just praying that that continues. Um, thank you so much for taking this time out for us to just catch up and to really acknowledge National Missing Children's Day and to acknowledge the 14 years uh, that you and your sister-in-law, right, Derek, because your sister yes, right, yes, that you all have been in the trenches doing this work. Um, you know, thank you for that. I know it has to be taxing. Um, I know even after you get through talking to me, there's more work to do. Um, and so again, just thank you for taking this opportunity. Please guys go to their website. I'm going to make sure that everything you need is in the show notes. Um, that's all the time for this episode. If there's anything you want to hear us talk about, you guys know what to do. Hit me up, KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. That is KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. And until our next episode, watch out for your babies and be blessed. <laughs> <laughs>